Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Selling out Madison Square Garden is worthless if it didn't make you think of five other things that you wanted to do once you sold out Madison Square Garden. So how do you know when it's right? Even if it's that open mic, if it's five people, if it's the parlor on a Monday night, if it's whatever, if it's, a, you know, if that thing makes you think of five other exhilarating things, then keep doing it. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very happy today because in Montreal, interviewing an international comedian who I have never met in my lifetime, and I'm excited to meet him and talk to him, and I'm talking about Veer Das. And before I start here, I just want to thank all of you for all of your incredible letters and texts and FedExes and all kinds of communications. It's been incredibly humbling. And the fact that you, in all walks of life, in all professions, have reached out to me and let me know that the stories of my guests have been very inspirational in helping you figure something out or or get to a certain level of your career that you need to get to, or simply just listen and identify and and hear more and learn more about these extraordinary guests. I totally appreciate it. I am so, so incredibly humbled, and I will never stop mentioning that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so as I look across from my guest, Veer Das, and I always like to say something before the podcast starts that just comes to me, one of the things about this guy that I think about, and it almost breaks the trend I feel of how things are these days as to where they were before. I met this incredible young writer named Julie Seabaugh, and she's probably one of the only freelance comedy writers out there in the world right now, and she's interviewed everybody in the world of stand-up. And when she gave me her card, on the back of her card, there's a quote, and it just struck me 
and I'd like to read it to you. It says, quote, if you're a band and you're just starting out, you'll get a fucking article in Rolling Stone, for Christ's sake. Everyone loves music and bands, but comedy, we don't get no respect, man. No one writes about comedy. No one gives a fuck about it. And I think there's some great comedians out there, you know? I think it's fucking sad we're overlooked. Like as a musician, you can look up to you too or someone cool. But as a fucking comedian, my you too is Don Rickles. It just don't have the same fucking effect on people. Unquote. Mitch Hedberg. And I can only presume, in my own opinion, that if Mitch were alive today, he'd see that times are changing and a lot of comedians are becoming rock star status. Comedians who figured out a way to tap into their audience, figure out a way to utilize their skill set and their material and their voice to make a change in the world. And now more than ever in stand-up comedy, there's more artists that are selling out arenas. There's more artists that are selling out theaters. And there's more artists that are selling out comedy clubs. And after going to see Dave Chappelle in New York at Radio City Music Hall, and when the lights went up, and looking out in the audience and seeing a group of people that probably would never have come together ever in the same room. But on that night when the lights went up, it seemed like 40% of the crowd was white, 40% of the crowd was black, and 20% of the crowd was a mixture of Latino, Asian, Muslim, every single ethnicity you can imagine represented all unified to see one comedian with one voice and one singular goal. And when I look across from Veer Das, I see a guy who, like most of us in the comedy business and in any business, start with nothing. They just have a dream of what they can do, how they know how to do it, and an instinct that tells them they should pursue something and go through with it and just sit down and write and come up with concepts that work, that make their audience galvanized. And I'm sure as I look across from Veer Das that I know that he would say, Barry, I'm not Dave Chappelle. I'm not at the level of any of these iconic people. And of course he would say that. And you know something? There wouldn't be a lot of people who would disagree with him. But where he is heading in the right path is he's trying to work hard every day to figure out a way to find the voice that's going to increase the audience and increase his message. He may look at his stand-up now, his hour special, and think, hey, I like that. 
that bit's great. I love how that went, but I'm not really 100% on the message here. You know, and at this point in the special, it's not really message related, it's more entertainment. And here I did the right thing. But comedy is not like brain surgery. It's not a situation where everything is flawless, like an incredible song like Stairway to Heaven or All Along the Watchtower or Freebird or for those older people in Agata Davida, Iron Butterfly. Comedy has a mixture of material all the time that you try to understand why it's there, but you don't. And a lot of these people who do it are brilliant. But even if you were to go to Chappelle's show at Radio City Music Hall, and I were to look at the videotape with Dave, he would say, look, I'm really happy with that. I really love how that went. That bit's really come together. I got the right message here. Well, yeah, that joke there I threw in just for me. I know it doesn't fit the tone of everything else, but I just did it. And people evolve and comedians evolve. And when I look at Vera Das's hour special from sitting here with him, I know that he is also going to evolve. And he knows that too, if he puts the work in and the time in and the effort and the concentration, it's only going to get bigger and bigger for him. And he knows that. I know he knows that. And what's happened to him since his hour special has aired is unprecedented. This guy is selling out show after show after show after show, adding shows. Yet I have the feeling he's not satisfied. I have the feeling that he wants more. I have the feeling that he has higher expectations for himself. Despite the success of his special and people coming to his shows in droves, I have the feeling that when he looks at his hour special, he would have done things differently. Maybe a few things here and there. But he knows that he has to get the audience comfortable with him and safe with him. Then he'll start taking them in the directions that he wants them to go. Look, George Carlin is one of the greatest comedians in the history of the world. If you listen to George Carlin's first works, you'll find the hippy-dippy weatherman. If you listen to some of his works at the end of his career, he talks about the people trying to save the earth and how the earth will flick humans off of it like dogs flick off fleas. The tone of his comedy changed, the message changed, and the transition came in steps and was fluid. And anybody in comedy from Dave Chappelle to Veer Das to 
any household name you can mention knows that if they're going to continue at the level that they are now and increase their audience exponentially the next year and the next year and the next year to reach as many people as possible and bring the message out there and galvanize their audience and the world. They have to figure out a way to keep pushing forward, keep evolving, never be satisfied. And when I sit across from Veer Das, you get the feeling that he feels that time is not on his side even though it's obvious to everybody in the world that it is. But for him, I have the feeling that he wants more now. He wants to figure out how to get to the next level now. He wants projects that he's working on greenlit now. And he's not going to take no for an answer. And he's going to keep fighting, pushing, and driving his career forward. And... I can guarantee you, if you have the same conviction and same desire and same work ethic and same mental toughness that this man has for his profession, I can guarantee you that you'll have the possibility of having the kind of career that Veer Das is having. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. When I first saw you and your comedy, I couldn't help but think of two people mm -hmm. that I kind of felt the same jolt by. Everybody has their own different thing. Yeah, yeah. First being Jim Jeffries' mm -hmm. HBO special when oh, nobody yeah. knew who he was. Yeah. And the second special being from a guy who many times wore regular clothes when he did comedy but also cross-dressed and decided in his first ever chance at reaching a worldwide audience he rolls out in the dress eddie izzard yeah. eddie izzard and the homophobicness of the united states mm -hmm. it didn't matter because after five minutes of listening to this guy's material you could be blind and know this guy was brilliant and I saw your special. I felt the same kind of excitement for you that I felt for both of them. Now, I know what you might say to yourself. You might say, well, Barry, we all stand on the shoulders of the greats that yeah. come before us. And, and Eddie Izzard is my favorite comedian in the world. And a great writer. And an underrated actor, I feel. And so I think about that and those two people, and I know... You sitting here, I don't know for sure, but I would presume that you would say that I am not at their level. Oh, nowhere close. That's right. Yeah. And back then, they weren't at the level they are now. And so I just want to share that I saw things in you that I felt when I saw their specials. It's unnecessarily kind, but... <laughs> and I know you would say this. I didn't see 
every frame in the special as being what I see in them now. Yeah. But I see what you see and what you said and you alluded to and you were so profound. You said, hey, that special was just an introduction. Oh, it is, yeah. And you'll see glimpses of what, but just like Carlin started off as the hippy-dippy weatherman, and if you watched Carlin back then and you didn't like the character comedy that he did, there was not even one glimpse of him back there that came to be the guy who said, I hate these people who recycle. Don't they realize that the earth will flick them off it like a dog flicks off fleas? Yeah. That was not evident in the early. And But you're cognizant and you have the mind and the vision with paneling on either side of your face to realize that you know where you're going and the kind of comedy you're aspiring to do. Well, yeah. I mean, because also there's a sense of... I'm fortunate to have been through that journey once in India. You know what I mean? Because so much of your your career, you're trying to get in the room. Just get in the room. And by get in the room, I don't mean with an exec or with a, a network. I mean with an audience member. Can I make it into your living room? Will you let me into your living room with an audience member? That's really important. And once I'm in the room, what next can I do? So I feel like a lot of Americans just kind of let me into the room with Netflix. So I'm in the living room now. I have access to your living room. Now what I come back with is very important. You know, and it can't be novelty Indian stuff anymore. It's got to be voice. It's not hard getting there. Yeah, it's hard staying there, yeah. I mean... For you, it was hard getting there, and it will be hard staying there. Yeah, and if it's not, I'll make it hard on myself. You know what I mean? So, I, I, you know, you, you can't think about these things. It's too daunting. You know, it's... It really is too daunting. Like, I remember when the Netflix special came out. In the first three days, everybody's kind of, fuck, you, you did it, fuck, fuck, fuck. You, you, you know, just hugging you and this and that. Da, da, da. And I was stressed. You know, I, I was, because the response that it got from across the world in, you know, 48 hours and then a week was... I never experienced anything like that, you know? So there's a, there's such a, a temptation uh, to kind of put your arms up and go, woo, when that happens. And I, at all costs, will resist that temptation. At all costs. I'll, I'll kind of, so I remember I made a rule because my, my phone was going off so often and Twitter was literally every, you know, five seconds or six seconds. I made a rule saying I will not get onto Twitter more than once every 10 hours because otherwise I'll just get lost in this, you know, just reading what, you know, and the ethos of who I am is that stuff is for them and jokes are for me and writing is for me and, and acting is for me. I'm not losing myself in that. I've, I've gone there before with like a Bollywood movie where it was a big hit and I'm like, I'm the shit. And suddenly you're wearing sunglasses in airports and, and you know, <laughs> you have uh, two useless people carrying your bags. And I've done that shit, you know what I mean? And, and I'm not remotely interested in becoming that guy anymore. So when the Netflix special came, it was such wonderful feedback and appreciation. And it feels disingenuous to not acknowledge that that's happening. Um, 
but you have to be really disciplined with yourself and i fully knew i'm not disciplined enough to to begin reading these things and not just kind of go oh this is so nice and this is so nice and this is so nice and 3 hours have gone by um so i'm just not going to read them i feel like i know you and i feel like i've known you from another lifetime <laughs> and you have this old soul I do. I always about have. you yeah and in kabbalah they say the things that you're great at in this lifetime you mastered in your past lifetimes yeah. and the things that you struggle with like you said money mm -hmm. you didn't master in, in my last lifetime, lifetime. Yeah. Tell I, our audience something that you still struggle with that you haven't mastered that you want to master in this lifetime so when you get to the next lifetime you'll have that down path. Patience, I have no no um I can't wait. It's it defines who I am. It's I mean, I've woken up with 20 ideas in my head every morning since I was 16 years old and that's never stopped every day i have 20 ideas for something or the other and i can't stand that those ideas don't see fruition right away <laughs> you know what i mean it's um you know when the like i i have a, a an amazon series that is going to go on flow in 3 weeks for an idea that i had 5 years ago and i'll often talk to like my agents and my managers and you know they deal with such powerful people etc and they you know i was reading i think i was listening to a podcast where like kumail nanjiani was saying it took him 4 years to get the big sick made you know and to me and and he said it with sort of a a, a calmness to it which is that's hollywood it takes 4 years sometimes to make a movie to me that's unacceptable <laughs> you know i cannot wait 4 years to have an idea so the fact that destination took 5 years which is the show that i'm doing took 5 years to come to life that was way too long and that's something i want to avoid in the future well um, i think one of the ways to avoid it if you'll oblige me which many artists would be violently opposed to the more money you make make your own series yeah, yeah. don't let the man control you yeah you have a great team around you yeah. and you shoot the series and then you go to each network and say I own this. Yeah. You want a part of this and I think you'll be one of the few guys who have a chance to take those ideas and actually bring them closer and sooner. I think you'll have your own whatever you call it studio and you'll be running your own stuff if things go the way they are and you'll be controlling your own destiny and those 20 ideas you'll be passing off to your executives and saying hey, here so. they are you know i i definitely do i mean there's i you know otherwise what's the point of having them in my head if if they're not going to turn into something i want to go way 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 back okay so take me back to where you were born where you grew up what was the Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. 
I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. The dynamic between you and your parents, and then what was your first inspiration to get into this crazy, fucked-up business? So, I mean, we lived in Africa, and we were well off. Um, Why were you well off? Because we were on an expat salary as, as the, for an Indian company. Um, dad, me, my elder sister, Trisha, and my mom. Um, dad is a consultant. Mom worked for the World Wildlife Fund. Um, very regular family. My sister was the original one with the artistic bone in her body. She was a documentary filmmaker and uh, a novelist since. For me, you know, we were in sort of a privileged boarding school. And then I was politely asked to leave that boarding school because I had some discipline problems. And then I went to public school. What were your discipline problems? I think I was caught with like booze and cigarettes when I was in like class eight or class nine. I could never in a million years visualize you at any time in your life as that kind of person. Yeah, it, it was what it was. People come up to my kids, they're 12 and 13, they say, you have such nice kids, they're so wonderful. And I always lean over because they have older kids and I always say, hey, uh, can I ask you a question? At what age does the bag of marijuana fall out of their pockets? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I, my first memory of, of comedy was I, uh, I was in a very strict boarding school where, you know, prefects could beat you up and, you know, it, it was very like corporal punishment was allowed. So I remember I'd gotten beaten up by this guy who was in grade 12 when I was in like class five. And there was a debate happening. And so all 900 kids in the school would, would have to watch the debate. And so um, he, had, he went up on stage and he did a joke, which he opened his debate with a joke, which was, uh, you're walking in the jungle and you meet a lion. What time is it? Time to run. <laughs> uh, and I was nine or 10. And I was pissed off by that joke. I don't know why. It just something in me snapped. And at the end of the debate, they give kids a chance to interject to ask the debater questions. And I remember my sister was in boarding school as well. And I was nine or 10 and I raised my hand and I walked up and this guy's in class 12 and he's like the head boy of the school. And I walked up to the mic and I got on stage for the first time and there's 900 kids. And I'm like, well, if you're walking in the jungle and you meet a lion, uh, it's not time to run. It's time to die. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I got like a big round of applause. And you gave him a finger. And I gave him a finger. Um, and it's the first time I remember thinking this microphone is powerful. And no matter how much this guy beats me later on today, he'll never win. Because uh, I was funny. You know, I won. And that's the first time I remember feeling funny and powerful because of it. So you're going back and forth from India and Africa. And, and college in the States. And you went to college in Illinois. Yes, Cornfield College, Cornfield, Knox College, <laughs> Galesburg, Illinois. Why did you choose these it colleges? financial aid. They gave me 90% financial aid. 
um, and it was a school that was known for doing so. But you were well off. You didn't need financial aid. By that time, we weren't. Kind of came back to Africa with the clothes on our back. So Why was that? We just, my dad had a business that wound up because the government changed. So all of a sudden, foreign businesses, licenses were revoked and foreigners left Africa. I now understand why you say you put the money in and you don't touch it. Absolutely. So, you know. We didn't, I, I always thought I was going to like Harvard or Brown or whatever. And then suddenly my dad was like, listen, remember that whole America thing? We don't have the money for it anymore. So instead of coming to America in my first year of college, I did two years of college in India and then came to America because I took that time to get myself financial aid. What's the difference between American women and Indian women? I, uh, women are women, you know what I mean? They're just superior and fascinating no matter what country you're in uh, <laughs> uh i think i don't know I, I i feel like american women if you're eloquent and hygienic uh <laughs> and employed uh american women are much more easily impressed with that <laughs> you know what i mean uh indian women are used to that shit that's passe uh but if if like I did all right in college because you were an eloquent, exotic fellow. Um, so, you know, yeah. And so take me through the next thing. After college, I believe you got a job as a VJ in Bombay, didn't VJ you? VJ in Bombay, which was terrible. Now, why would you leave America and go back to India? I was washing dishes in, at the Grand Lux Cafe in Chicago. <laughs> and so it wasn't really like some special fucking shit going on <laughs> in my life. I went back home uh, for a vacation, got offered this job. Ended up doing it. I was off the air in six months. Why was that? It was uh, not a very good show or a very good channel. Did you get fired or the show? I got fired. Very much fired. So that was the first time you got fired? Yeah, but it was a very strange thing because they had me under this contract, which, you know, I mean, you're a manager, so you know when kids show up in a big city, they sign these shitty contracts that you have to then get them out of. That's Uh, right. (laughs) You know my job well. So I signed a contract with this channel where... They paid me a salary, um, which was like the equivalent of, I'd say, $8,000 a month. Uh, no, uh, $5,000 a month. It's a lot of money when you're 25 years old. Um, but if I, and they had me under a three-year contract, but if I left my job earlier, they, I owed them a certain amount of money because they were investing in my brand. And so six months in, I was off the air and I was like, fuck, I have two and a half more years to go with these guys. And they were like, don't worry, Veer, we'll bring you back. And I'm like, uh, but I understand that sitting at home for a year is creative death. I can't wait for a year to have my next project out. So I kind of went into the CEO's office as a 25-year-old kid. And I was like, you know, uh, and his name was Ashwin. I was like, you know, Ashwin, uh, I'll wait. I'll wait a year and a half for you to bring me back. When you bring me back, I may not be funny. And he was like, what? I'm like, you know, it's possible that in a year and a half, I lose my funny. So it's possible. (laughs) I'm not saying it's true, but it's possible that when I come back, every single joke I write for you is shit and unfunny. And he kind of went, oh, well played. (laughs) (laughs) You're fired, Veer. And I'm like, thank you so much, Ashwin. (laughs) And then I walked out of that uh, and got another job. One of the things that's fascinating about you, most comedians 
They start off trudging it out at open mic nights. Their first shows are in front of four people yeah, my who first are show in a coma. 600 people. Will you tell our audience how it's possible that that happened? I, uh, it was final year drama school. We had to do a, a theater performance. I wrote a show called Brown Men Can't Hump. Um, and this is another thing. Again, presuming I know Veer, which I don't, the thought of that title, him having to look back at that title for the rest of his oh career. Yeah, that's not a proud moment, yeah. <laughs> I made the poster first, which I still do. Like, I will make the poster, design the poster, print the poster, put it up on my wall, and then start writing the show. So with, with Brown Man Can't Hump, I gave myself four months. I booked the theater. Um, I printed the poster, and I put the posters all over the college. So all of the college people were just looking around saying brown men can't hump for some reason. And then I started writing the material. And it was largely stories about friends and inside jokes. And uh, it was a bullshit show. But uh, it got me comfortable with oh, doing that. But then you did it again. Not that show. Yeah. But you did the pun again. And I've done it since. Uh, you did Walking on Broken Das. Yeah, so Walking on Broken Das was... A show where I played uh, five characters, uh, five different types of comedians. So, and I was, it was uh, like a little, you know, I, I'd had an engagement breakup at that time. You were engaged. I, I was engaged before I met um, my wife, Shivani, who's my wife now. Now that's got to be devastating. What was your part in it not working out? It was, was a, a long distance thing. And then oh. we were kind of okay. trailing off anyway. But I was allegedly broken at that point in time. So that show was my redemption show. Pick myself back up. Was that fabricated broken or just allegedly broken? Who fucking knows? I was 27, <laughs> 28 years old. You know what I mean? Who fucking know these, knows these things at that age? <laughs> awesome. I, I think you, you tell yourself you're broken because you can justify <laughs> your, your angriness and your art at that point. But then your second show, History of India, is yeah. the largest selling English-speaking show in Indian history. Yes. Because it, suddenly it went beyond stand-up comedy fans. It's the history of India from 2000 BC to last week. So suddenly I had 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 85-year-olds coming in for this show. You know, and it became not really stand-up, but a theater piece. Almost. It was like a West End show. So we sold 270,000 tickets of that show in four and a half years. So, yeah. And then I had to get rid of it because it was an albatross around my neck. Because I was like, I'm evolving beyond this. It was a clean show and I kind of wanted to do some edgy stuff. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success,
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And I wanted to push the envelope. I can't be nice guy from history all the time. Let's just say you do a 1,500-seat theater yeah. here, and you do a 1,500-seat theater in India in terms of money, and I'm yeah. not even going to use real figures. So let's just say you make $100 for your gig in America. Yeah. For the same gig in India, what would you make equivalent to the $100? Well, you know, I mean, it's tricky because the rupee is weak when it compares to the dollar, mm -hmm. you know, but um, I would say if I made a hundred bucks for a show in America, I would make 300 bucks or 400 bucks for a show in India. But that 400 bucks, when you get to India, is the equivalent of 700 bucks. It buys 700 bucks worth of stuff. So... What was your first big break in this country? Do you feel like it was the five minutes in Montreal or do you feel like you had a bigger break at some other point in time? Uh, it was uh, the LA Improv on a Saturday night at 8 o'clock because we, we sold it out and CA had got me down and they were like, let's give him some spots. The first time I came down to LA. So I did like 5.10, 5.10 at different clubs. Then they were like, hey, let's let's give him Caroline's on Broadway. And we suddenly sold 3,000 tickets. And they are like, let's add the improv. And so in two weeks, we sold out the LA improv on a Saturday night. Which for me was historical because it's that iconic club. And then that show was where Levity found me. And then we did a showcase for like Netflix, HBO, Showtime, etc., etc., these people at these companies are so confident in their ability to find the content that to get people out to a club to watch somebody is like, yeah, just, just send me the link. So a lot of times it's very uniquely difficult to convince these people to come out because the way the technology works these days, you don't need to come out. And so the people showed up and... Yeah, they showed up and there was 150 excited Indians in there. So they saw me in my element with my people. And that led to the Netflix special. Tell me three comedians who, besides Eddie Izzard, mm -hmm. completely blow you away. Um, George Carlin for the I don't give a fuckness that he embodied but still made up for with substance because uh, if you have I don't give a fuckness without substance you're just an asshole you know what I mean uh, and he had depth and substance to go with it um, I'm a big fan of uh, Richard Pryor uh, in terms of connect to an audience uh, and taking his connection with a particular audience and making that his connection with another audience just the the really strong representative connect that he had with the black audience became his connection with the white audience because they almost envied that connection and wanted to be a part of that group. And I think that was fantastic. And that's hard to pull off comedically. Um, and I would say there's an Indian comedian called Johnny Lever, Hindi comedian, just for crowd control. 
I've seen that man hold 12,000 people in the palm of his hand and if he cried, they cried. And if they, he laughed, they'd laugh. Your proudest moment in show business? My proudest moment in show business has not happened yet. Give me five years. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level? I did a movie two years ago that I knew was a shit movie. Um, but it was a gamble because it was just shitty enough to be really, really commercial. And it was a, a bad sex comedy kind of a movie. Uh, did it as a gamble. Gamble didn't pay off. A lot of people wrote me off at that moment in time and said my career was over. And I fully knew I deserved it because I kind of sold out on that one. But I promised myself that whether you're doing one for them or one for you, you still have to believe in the content at some level. This was the last time I would ever do something where I did not believe in the content. Uh, I would stop looking for packaging and start looking for content. Lastly, what advice do you have for the young artist or anybody in any profession who's a young kid moving from country to country, not really having that much direction, getting thrown out of school and beaten up and drinking and smoking in the bathroom <laughs> and having no real direction, figuring out how to rein it all in and put things together and have the kind of career that you have? Uh sleep with the right people no, I'm just kidding uh, I'd say don't have the goal should be another idea you know a, a lot of people have the goal which is I want to sell out Madison Square Garden I want to you know and to me selling out Madison Square Garden is worthless if it didn't make you think of five other things that you wanted to do once you sold out Madison Square Garden so how do you know when it's right even if it's that open mic, if it's five people, if it's the parlor on a Monday night, if it's whatever, if it's, a, you know, if that thing makes you think of five other exhilarating things, then keep doing it. Fear Das, <laughs> I'm emotional, I'm speechless <laughs> because I had no idea what to expect and you just shook my world. You really made me think so much and I'm so honored that you came here and sat down with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, man. It was really good fun. It was a great conversation. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Fortune 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.